if you can look at what people are doing, whether it's a, a song in the shower in the morning or a favorite book that they read or a walk that they take, like these are all the first step. And then what tradition can do is meet you there and take you further. That's the beauty of, of the wisdom of the ancestors. It's not to school you and make you feel small and stupid. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashivenu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. I am so delighted today to welcome my friend and my teacher, Casper Turkile. Casper is the author of the newly released book, The Power of Ritual. He is the co-founder with some amazing people of the Sacred Design Lab. He's a fellow at the Harvard Divinity School, and you may know him as the co-host, the co-creator of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Casper, I'm so happy to be with you today. Thank you for having me, Deborah. I'm just so thrilled to, uh, to join the illustrious company of the other guests you've had. I've seen <laughs> lots and lots of friends uh, join you in conversation, so thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been such a blessing to be in conversation with so many wonderful people. I want to name for our listeners that Casper and I are having this conversation in late March uh, with an intention of releasing the conversation in, in late June. And so we are going to try to shape a conversation that is at once responsive to the moment we're in and also touches on themes that I think are really very abiding and we hope that we're going to get it right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my, yeah, my hope is that these, these questions are enduring and perhaps even just... Uh, more, more on top of our minds uh, in, in this moment and you know, these months to come. I think that's right. I think that the things that brought us together initially really are uh, coming to the forefront. Um, so let's tell the story about how, how we met. Uh, I, I met Casper through his work on this amazing project that he uh, initiated uh, with a classmate at Harvard Divinity School called How We Gather. So can I, um, yeah. uh, can yeah, I ask you to I, tell that story? Absolutely. So I, I should say I, I was born and raised in England, which I think, you know, apart from perhaps Holland and Denmark is one of the more secular countries uh, in the world. And, and like so many people in the UK, I wasn't raised with any sort of faith tradition. Um, I went to a Waldorf school. So there were lots of kind of rituals and nature based, you know, singing, community, um, but n n nothing formal. Um, and uh, so it was a bit of surprise to my parents, certainly also as a gay man, to arrive in divinity school. Uh, everyone was kind of confused. Um, but there I met my wonderful colleague and co-founder, Angie Thurston, who herself was also an unlikely candidate. She came from the world of theater. And both of us were, when you students, asking the questions of, you know, it's really interesting to learn about these themes of, of, of you know, connection, uh, of ritual, of meaning-making, um, uh, and, and tradition, but like, what does it look like for, for our kind of people, you know, who, who aren't mm -hmm. in a synagogue or a church or a, a worship community? And um, so we just started to ask people, you know, where do you go to find community? Where, where, what's, what's the place where you find belonging? Um, and we started with friends and friends of friends, and we started to participate in some of the communities they described. And what they named kept surprising us. So they would talk about fitness groups like CrossFit or the November Project. They would talk about arts groups or maker spaces. Um, they would talk about justice groups or uh, activist groups. They would talk about all sorts of places that were ostensibly secular. But when we looked at them more closely, what you would see in a congregation 
kept popping up in these secular communities too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what we wanted to write was sort of a kind of cultural map, a, a sort of landscape map of how people were doing religious things in secular spaces. And by that, I mean the obvious ones like getting married, having funerals, you know, people sitting shiver in a CrossFit box, um, people, um, uh, you know, sh showing and sharing their talents within the community, playing cello for the first time, doing stand-up, people looking after each other in communities of care, bringing each other food, fundraising money if someone was diagnosed with cancer. Um, yeah, and, and, and just kind of the, the, the even political and, and social justice engagement, you know, people getting involved in um, uh, campaigns around access to housing or combating uh, sugar addiction and, and uh, uh, you know, other health issues. So what we really wanted to do was to hold a mirror for these secular community leaders and say, what you're doing secretly <laughs> without meaning to right. is you're actually leading a congregation mm -hmm. and that comes with beautiful opportunities but it also comes with significant responsibilities mm -hmm. um you know because uh the, you know if you if you're a fitness trainer you've not been trained in pastoral boundaries you know how do you mm -hmm. how do you navigate attraction to one of your congregants mm -hmm. uh, you know how do you handle someone who's in grief uh you know famously one of the uh, stories we heard was how a soul cycle instructor was used to getting a text you know on a sunday afternoon at 4 p.m from one of the people who who spins in her spin class saying should I divorce my husband? Mm -hmm. uh, that's not something folks were prepared for. Right. And yet those were the realities of, 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 their, of their experience. So we, the, the project, that, that initial document, which was just a 20 page PDF, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was not rocket science. But I think what it did was, was really help um, kind of clarify. Crystallize. Yeah, right? crystallize, exactly. What people have been noticing, but right. maybe not all those different strings together. Right, right. Right. It's a wonderful, I mean, there will, we'll, there's, we'll post in the show notes that, that, cause it's a, you've published several other, mm. other, uh, kind of tracts or yeah, monographs uh, yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> I go to the first one a lot. I mean, yeah. it, it, we've, we've used it a lot. Um, it's so interesting. It reminds me, uh, when I was in my twenties and trying to decide if I, what I wanted to do with my life, like what mm. I wanted to do, where I wanted to do it and who I wanted <laughs> to do it with and all those open questions with a lot of angst. Um, <laughs> but you figured I, it all out. It's done. I figured it all out. Well, I thought like, it, 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 I figured it out. I remember I just, it was, I felt it in myself. I yeah. saw it in all my peers. I remember sitting in Brooklyn, like, at, yeah. like making a list, trying to make a matrix and certain things did actually, once you figured one piece out, other pieces come together. I mean, I remember mm. just a little bit of a personal aside, but I remember, I was trying to, I was in the process of coming out and mm. I was also trying to figure out if I maybe wanted to make Aliyah and move to Israel and trying wow. to figure out if I wanted to be a rabbi. And I remember once I decided that I was going to go to rabbinical school, I remember thinking, oh, I'm not going to move to Israel now yeah, because yeah. At now as a woman rabbi, as a lesbian rabbi, there would be opportunities for me, but in the 90, in the That's early 90s, story. not at all. Yeah. So it was, you know, it, it came together. But when I finally made the decision, I thought I was choosing between the rabbi and the PhD mm. track in the end, looking back, I was just sequencing it, but I didn't know that at the time. I saw that there were a lot of other places to make community. Hmm. And one of the reasons I wanted to be a rabbi is because I, I wrote about this in my application essay, that it gave me access yes. to a framework of meaning yes. and vocabulary and practices uh, and wisdom so that, that, I, that I could draw on in that community building, community deepening initiative. Uh, and so this, 
this is what was so surprising for us because honestly, when even when we wrote this little paper, Angie and I couldn't have told you the difference between a Presbyterian and a Methodist or, or you know, someone who's in the reform movement versus the Reconstructionist movement. I, I was so illiterate when it came to existing religious traditions. And what was so surprising to us was the interest in our work from within existing traditions. Right. Right. And so we ended up going on what really felt like a three-year kind of tour of family reunions. We would join Rabbi Sid Schwartz and his gatherings, you know, the Kinnisar gatherings of, of, of Jewish innovators. We would join uh, Methodist ministers and bishops and Episcopalians and, and, you know, all of these people coming together, asking these big questions about what is the future of our tradition. And as they were looking forward, what we got to do was look back into these right. traditions right. and to see the riches within them. And very, very quickly, we were like, you know what, we've been looking at this secular innovation landscape. We need to widen the lens and bring spiritual and secular innovators together. And so that was kind of a, a, a bit of a risk for us because we didn't know how these two groups would play, you know, would they play nice? Yeah. And it was just one of the joys of my life to, to bring together folks and see within hours that, you know, some of the gatherings we hosted, you couldn't tell who was who. Uh, and, and it was it was so mutually beneficial because the folks steeped in tradition felt like, oh, this is a way of, you know, whether it was talking about with language that really resonated in right. a contemporary world or, or a sense of relevance and an immediate connection. And folks who were really, you know, hot on Instagram were like, oh gosh, I don't have to make it up all, you know, mm -hmm. all of it all the time. Like actually there are things that I can draw on from history and tradition. And so we ended up doing a bunch of things that connected people. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, we did a little elder matchmaking pilot where we put together, you know, someone who, who, who runs a, a gym or, a, or an arts group or a, a social justice group with often a retired clergy person. So for example, you know, someone running a, a taco truck community uh, initiative in Texas was matched with Rabbi Laura Geller, you know, one mm -hmm. of the first women ordained in the reform movement. And, and they would have never found one yes, another, yes, but yeah. it ended up being this wonderfully mutually inspiring relationship where, you know, just over Zoom, uh, people would speak for an hour a month and, and really learn from one another and, and, and kind of learn how to translate the riches of tradition. And so th the way I've kind of shifted my thinking is this, this distinction between the secular and the sacred is so unhelpful mm -hmm. because it's actually not at all representative of people's experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I've really loved this, like shifting that, that divide of kind of, um, you know, a, a spatial divide between one place is religious and the other place is secular is to really kind of flip it by 90 degrees and have, you know, that th there's a reality which can feel secular, but anywhere where you go deeper, you're always going to get to the sacred. And that, that's what's happening in these communities too. Yeah, I just want to pause for a second because I'm going to try to bring something to speech that I don't know that I've ever done before. So now I'm kind of putting on my my academic hat. Yes. Like <laughs> so part of the thing about modernity, mm -hmm. part of the thing about the rise of enlightenment thought and the rise Correct. of rationalism is that before the pre-modern era, religion exactly informed right. everything. That's religion right. informed everything. And part of what modernity brought was a shrinking of the realm of influence of religion yes. into an ever... Yes. Um, ever smaller circle to the just point to the building, just yeah. to the building, right? Or or or, or to the home. Yes. So that I've said before, I've written about that before. Uh, my great teacher on that is Rabbi David Ellenson, Doctor mm. Rabbi David Ellenson, the former Chancellor of of Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion. He's written mm. a lot about the process of secularization. And then early Reconstructionists were so interested in reconstructing religion mm. so that it could be relevant 
in every sphere of our lives, of, sh- yeah. of exactly that shattering that you were yes. just talking about, and that recognition that our lives are holy, our bodies are holy, right. we are holy. And so being in this world and finding ways within a way that accommodates science rather yes. than competes with science and yes. rationalism to infuse our lives with holiness and with connection. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, uh, it, you know, I, this always strikes me when you hear scientists really at the edge of their field talk about their research. They're the ones who are most in touch with that sense of spirituality and this, the glory and, and awe and wonder. Awe, the, awe, exactly. awe, and humility. Like we and just, humility. We do not know the limits. Absolutely. The limits of, I think for me, one of the things when I was in rabbinical school and I inherited this from the classical reconstructionists, as they were, they were trying to make the case for this new approach to religion, mm. and they felt like they were combating supernaturalism. They considered that the old stuff was about uh, right. God who intervened. who didn't, right. Right. And that they, they kept saying, you don't have to leave your mind at the door. And, but it was totally binary. And it was about rationalism and irrationalism, rationalism mm. and non-rationalism. And I think that the part of what, what, what allows this conversation and the insight that you, you have is, is that critical third category of a-rationalism, mm. of mystery, of mm. that which we simply don't know. And it's, it steps away from the hubris that can creep in, from the pride that can creep in that, with a certainty that we, we know right. everything. So. Right, right. And I think that this is the thing that we found over and over again amongst these communities. Well, two things I'll share. One of them was that um, a lot of the leaders ended up turning out to be the kids of ministers or rabbis, or they'd been to the best summer camp programs or the best Jewish day schools, right? Like they had a rich experience of what it felt like to be in religious community, but they, um, you know, they, they might change the language and some of the structure, but what they were creating was something that they knew how to make because they'd experienced it. And right. I think more and more people, if you don't have the experience of yeah. it, right? And so often now it's not just a case of people leaving religion, it's people like me who weren't born with anything, right? So I'm not even actively rejecting something, it was just absent. Right. Um, and so, so there's this really interesting moment where I, I think it's not this battle of like secularism against religion or, or you know, in, in my case, right, like whether it's a, a, an anti-feminist, anti-woman, anti-gay, you know, mm-hmm. political agenda versus the reality of my experience. It's not even that fight so much. It's just this sense of like, is this it? versus yeah, there yeah. is more, <laughs> you that's know? Right, that's and and right. I think that's, that's really the, the map that we were seeing was that people, if, if they feel safe to engage with tradition, they're hungry for it. You know, right. I remember we, we introduced at one of the very first gatherings of all of these secular leaders, right? People doing all of this community work, but in a secular context. And at the very end of the three, four day gathering, we invited everyone to share something that they were uh, hopeful for, that they were fearful of, and that they were proud of. And the first person to go around said, I am not hopeful. I have faith in. And it was just like, what? <laughs> you know, wow. Suddenly all of this religious language was coming back, but people felt like they had ownership over it. It felt yeah. like it was authentically theirs. And this is something we've seen every time, that once people from the secular world feel, feel safe and like they, there's an invitation, that there's this like rabid hunger, like share more. I want to learn more. You know, one of the, the, one of the co-founders of meetup.com, a wonderful platform that helps people, uh, you know, meet up around double Dutch group or Spanish fluency class or whatever it is that they want. Whatever just, it is. Right, whatever it is. I remember him just sitting next to an Episcopal priest and just with all sincerity asking, but 
what is God? <laughs> right, right. But how great to have that conversation, the invitation of the conversation. So exactly, exactly. so great. And the thing is, I find this all the time because, you know, the reconstructionist approach to the divine is, yeah. I mean, look, lots, every individual has their own God right. idea. But the work that we do is about, not so much about the personal God, but much more about uh, Kaplan, Mordecai Kaplan, the founding thinker yes. of reconstructionism, talked about God as the power that makes for salvation. And he mm. meant that, that which allowed us to be our best possible selves and to engage in the world around us and to bring salvation together. Um, I, I will talk about God as the source of, the, source of life, mm. the ground of being of the universe, Mekor HaChayim, the, mm. the, well, the wellsprings mm. of life. You know, for me, the natural images really resonate very, very powerfully. But, to, but so to, I, the idea that it's something other than an old man with a in long beard right. sitting in the sky, <laughs> sitting on a throne, judging us is, is revel revelatory Absolutely. to a lot of people. Absolutely. So. As it was for me, you know, as it was for me and, and to discover, um, yeah, exactly. This, this, this freedom with language, I think is a really important point because one of the things that we know from, for, for at least what, what I've learned from neuroscience, uh, from neuroscience is that when we have an experience that we can't put into words, we, we have two choices, either to be completely bamboozled by it, which is very destabilizing, or to suppress the experience as illegitimate. Mm -hmm. um, and to maintain the stability of our worldview. Right, and right. so unless we have words to make sense of, you know, even the, cl the cliche of a beautiful sunset, right? But also mm -hmm. just holding a newborn in our arms, feeling deep love with a partner, uh, you know, unless, unless we have language for that, we, we literally can't make meaning with it. Um, yeah. And so I think one of the, one of the, the gifts of tradition is that, that there are words that we don't have to you know, abide by completely. We can be playful and innovative with them, but there is, there is something that we can hold on to. Uh, right. Well, that's why I feel like I, why I'm in the progressive camp of religion, why yeah. I'm a reconstructionist, because is there, is, there is that invitation to be playful with the words and with the structures. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, so I, we, ne we didn't make it explicit, but that's how I first met Casper and Andy. Um, <laughs> that's right. Long one story. One of these wonderful <laughs> gatherings. This is exactly what, what I wanted us to do, but at one of these <laughs> gatherings. And I remember saying it, that gathering that it was yeah. only because I could, the Reconstructionist movement, when I decided it's only been about 50 years that women could be rabbi. And this was, right. this was more than, this was almost 30 years ago that I was making this decision. So it was mm -hmm. still pretty new. It was very new that women could be rabbis. It was very, very new that queer people could be mm -hmm. rabbis and that it was the Reconstructionist community that allowed me to step forward and offer up my gifts. Yeah. And that if that hadn't existed, I probably would have exited Jewish life completely or just yes. like done little stuff on the side and given my energies elsewhere. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that invitation for freedom feels essential to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so all, all this amazing work that you continue that you I presume your association with Harvard Divinity School is to kind of through line to continue. That's right. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been a wonderful base for us to be, to be at HDS. Um, and I've learned so much, you know, from, from, from being exposed to the, these wonderful academics and practitioners around me, because that sense, and I, I, the thing I really, I, I hope my gift to the world can be, you know, as so many of us is, but is to give people a sense of spiritual confidence. And, and that for me came from professors saying to me, Hey, you know, it's interesting. You're, you're taking this, you know, the Hebrew Bible class 
And I'm sitting there being like, well, this is interesting, but this text doesn't feel like it belongs to me. I, I didn't grow up with it. You know, what are the narratives that I really grew up with? And, you know, I'm thinking about Lord of the Rings. I'm thinking about, uh, uh, you know, Sound of Music. I'm thinking about Harry Potter. And one of my professors said to me, you know, she's a professor of, of religion and literature, Stephanie Purcell. And she was like, well, what, what about if we read Harry Potter as a sacred text? What, what would that be like? And I would have never dared to do that. You know, like that's an absurdity. But when someone who is steeped in the tradition gives you that sense of permission and that, that, that creativity to say like, it's good, you can trust this, uh, is, such, is such a gift. And that's, you know, that's really what I, what, certainly what we sought to do with, with, with the podcast where literally we read, uh, you know, chapter by chapter through the Harry Potter books, but we do Chavruta, we do Pardes, we do Lexio Divina, we draw from Christian and, and Jewish reading practices. Um, because, you know, people were already doing it. People were yeah. already treating yeah. this book like yeah. their sacred text, yeah. turning it to, to it in times of comfort, turning to it, uh, uh, you know, after a breakup or, or, or someone was diagnosed. Uh, with, with, right, exactly. With That's so, totally my experience of it. So. Right. Like the, the, uh, it's such a, you know, I think child psychologists talk about Hogwarts as the place that a lot of kids say is the safe place that they go to in their mind, you know, in times of distress, which is slightly ironic because the amount of chaos that happens at Hogwarts would suggest it's <laughs> I know. I, that's a whole. That's a whole conversation to have about like the terrible pedagogy and yes. the, you know, like all that. So, but. but. But but it's the, you but know, home, but, but home and safety. But home. And, it's home. Exactly. And, and growth and community. Exactly. And exactly. Exactly. And so to, to think about, you know, the things that we already do and then to to bring these these practices from tradition to them. And that that's that's what brings me alive in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but so but so 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 I think that that wisdom, I love that phrase, spiritual confidence. And because I'll tell you a story and then I want to dive mm-hmm. into the podcast a little bit. Um, and I, I know, I'm sure it's a story you've heard over and over again, um, the, just the, what it's like to move through the world as a rabbi. And mm. so I'm not like, I, I'm not a priest. I don't wear a collar. Right. Sometimes I, I wear a kippah when I want to be, I have a whole- uh, Identifiably Jewish. Yeah. Yes. I have a whole analysis yeah. that I really deeply believe that women's yes. spirituality and women's religious leadership need not look identical to men. So mm. I have a real resistance to wearing a kippah at all times, but that does, does really- signal to people that I am, I yeah. am a, a Jew and usually a Jewish leader. So when I'm, a, when I'm in hospital, like when I was working as a mm-hmm. hospital chaplain doing a unit of clinical pastoral education, I wore it all the time. And I, I remember when I went to visit our congregation in Pittsburgh, mm. I drove out, which was, which met at Tree of Life Synagogue and was, was wow. doing the highest refugee Shabbat and was targeted. And I went out the day after I wore a kippah that day. And when I, I got to the, I had to drive the, uh, mm. like to get there, to get to a community meeting. And I, as I parked by the church, I got out of my car. I remember this woman, there was someone who was dri- drove by me, saw me, drove to the corner, got out at the stop sign, got out of her car and shouted out and said, we are all, we are all with you. Wow. We stand with the Jewish community. And wow. it was, I was so grateful that I was flagging mm. Jew. That yes. She didn't know I was rabbi. She didn't know I was movement head. Yeah. But, but that's not the usual reaction. In, in, in quieter times, right. a lot of times when people find out that I'm a rabbi, they, I just get all of their ambivalence and I get all of their pain. <laughs> and I get, you know, when I was seven, right. the, 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 in Hebrew school, the rabbi was mean to me and therefore I was never, I never went back to... Oh. To, to synagogue and it's so painful to me that yeah. 
that, that they experienced pain. It's painful to me that they experienced it. Yeah. It's, and it's painful to me that the retreat was so great. But I, what I do really hear in that enactment of, amb- of ambivalence and that mm-hmm. narrative of pain is the absolute lack of spiritual confidence. That's right. That's right. This sense of judgment. I mean, it, it, and it, you know, in the Jewish community, it, it plays out in so many people saying, well, I'm a bad Jew, you know, right. in, in, exactly. in, in, in Catholicism, it's its own version. I mean, everyone has their own special flavor of like shame and sadness. So it's just, it, it's, it's frustrating to me. I, I, and this is where, you know, I do feel resentment at <laughs> religious institutions because I'm like, do your job. You know, That's exactly right. And happening. don't be abusive. And don't like, be you abusive. have power, oh. use it wisely. <laughs> Absolutely, because it's like fire, you know, like religion it can, can warm you, it can, be the, it can be the hearth, the center of the gathering place, a candle to light your way through life, but it can also burn your freaking house down. Um, and it has, and it has for a lot of people, and um, no doubt. I mean, I, when I'm on a plane and someone says, oh, so what do you do? I often say, I work for a small nonprofit. That's you know? exactly right. I say, I have a PhD in American Jewish history, and my wife is a professor, so if I, if I you know, if I even fib a yes. little bit and say, oh, I teach at her little university, because yeah. I can, you know, I can fill in the details, because I just... <laughs> I don't want to have the, you know, sometimes I want to have the pain. Absolutely. Come, absolutely. Know. And and sometimes you want to lean into it. And I also think of Brene Brown's story where she, when people ask her, you know, what do you do? She always says, I research shame and I see you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, I think it exactly right. It reveals this, this deep ambivalence and sense of, um, yeah, a mix of, of both inadequacy, but also like aggression. And, and it's, um, it's well earned is the first thing I want to say. Yes. And, and so then what do we do with it? And right. I think, and I think that the, the response is not to say, oh, you should learn the things better, right? Like my, my right. instinct is always to say, well, tell me about your life, right? Like what, it, what is right. it that you do do? And that was the, that was the ethos both of the, of the podcast project and also of the How We Gather research was to start with what are people already doing? Because That's my right. assumption about the human soul is that we are naturally seeking community and that we're naturally seeking meaning. And so right. if, you can, if you can look at what people are doing, whether it's a, a song in the shower in the morning or a favorite meal that they cook on grandma's, you know, birthday, or if they, uh, you know, a, a favorite book that they read or a walk that they take, like these are all places that are, that are the first step. And then what tradition can do is meet you there and take you further. That's like that's, that's the beauty of, of the wisdom of the ancestors. It's not to school you and make you feel small and stupid. Um, and so f- finding the places where people, and, and this is often true with parents who are looking at their kids saying, oh my God, why aren't they, you know, why aren't they going to school? Why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? And it's like, yeah, but look at what they are doing. You know, right, let's, st- right. let's start there and right. then build on that. Right, right. I think that that's so important. One of my colleagues, Rabbi Nancy Fuchs Kramer, she wrote a beautiful book called Parenting as a Spiritual Journey. Um, the, the original title was a quote from Memily Dickinson. It, in the first edition, it was called Our Share of the Night, Our Share of the Morning. Oh, what a that was so evocative. Mm. And, and then in the reprint, they published it just as the, with the subtitle so that mm. So that the people who really needed it, and it was about trying to sacralize yes. the routines and the rhythms of parenting. Yeah. But I think you're right to adopt the. That's the. That's a very core reconstructionist approach. That it's about adopting the affirmative. What are you doing, and how can yes. we deepen it? Yeah. And I think that that's the premise behind this podcast. Is one of the grounding uh, principles is to invite people in and to say, look, yeah. we don't have to make it up. Well, what you are doing is amazing, and yeah. there is a whole lineage that you can yes. draw from and yes. that, that, that you, you, you don't have to compromise yourself. You can bring your whole self to the engagement. You have that permission to play with it. 
Uh, but you can join yourself in to the community that preceded. You can have a conversation with the horizontal community that, that surrounds us. And that's yeah. how we're going to make something meaningful for the next generation. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as you said, we're recording this in, in a time of lockdown. I'm in uh, coming towards the end of week two of, of being at home. And I'm a big fan of a football team in the UK, uh, Leeds United, um, which uh, there's a bigger story behind that. I went to boarding school and realized very quickly, you know, in my all male boarding house is a little queer kid. I was like, oh boy, I'm going to need a football team to survive socially. <laughs> and I heard an interview with this one guy, David O'Leary, who was Irish and had a very sexy accent. So I was like, oh, I'll support that team. Okay. So that's, <laughs> okay. that's why I support Leeds. But here we are, you know, 20, uh-huh. 20 years later and it's still true. So, um, and I've noticed like not having the regularity of sports yeah. fixtures has been, I'm noticing how much of an anchor that is for me in yeah. time. Um, and, and to realize like, gosh, that rhythm of life that it, of course, religion provides in many ways, but also these other things in our in our society give me a sense of where we are within a calendar. And all I want to do now is to kind of map out a sort of liturgical sporting calendar. You know, looking forward to the Olympics, looking forward to March Madness. Like these are these are things not just for my enjoyment, but my in laws in rural Kentucky and I really connect during yes, exactly. the, during the month when UK, you know, uh, right. University of Kentucky is is hopefully going to the finals. And without that, we don't have that. Op- that's exactly right. and connection. I um, am an Eagles football fan because it is oh, I'm sorry. something. <laughs> <laughs> we had a good year a couple of years ago. You did. You but, did. But, but it gives me, the main reason is because it gives me something to talk about with my yeah. brothers-in-law. And exactly. if I don't have, without that, exactly. I, it, it is, there's, I, I will do everything I can to deepen those connections. Yes. And so. And here we are. Yeah. That's right. I know. I know. Well, but that's about, that's about, I think, you know, whatever. That's a, that's a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, so one of the things that was so fascinating to me about, I mean, I love the Harry Potter podcast probably because I love, mm. um, I, I love your relationship with your co-host Vanessa and yes. I, and the, and the interchange that you have. And I, I am a huge Harry Potter fan and definitely turn to it as a sacred text and a place yeah. of a place of comfort, both the written versions and the, I was such a huge fan of the Jim Dale recorded versions. Yes. And well, and if you think about textual recitation, I mean, this is one of the, one of another great spiritual technology, right? Is, is, is so that I think the reason why people love those books so much in part is because they hear it. Um, yeah. People fall asleep to it. I'm a Stephen Fry version fan, but you know, we can have that debate. Right? I, I have to, we, I've tried, but I, 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 I once, I mean, I just think Jim Dale's mastery of the voices. Oh, yeah. Oh, astonishing So good. good. But then, I mean, so, but I've also, a couple of different things. I follow the podcast also, uh, uh, in part because I just, it's so fascinating to watch Mm. you take these sacred practices and apply them and introduce them to, you know, as a, as a rabbi, Mm. some of it has been new, but, but a lot of it, it's just been fascinating to watch you do it. But I've also been listening to watch the community that's growing oh, yeah. around it. And it feels incredibly apt in this moment of pandemic when, you know, here, your first book, your first, the first monograph was How yeah. We Gather. And mm. I, as, as, a, as a rabbi, I think that the single, the thing I've said more than anything mm. in my 20 plus years of being a rabbi is the importance of community, the importance of coming together, the importance yeah. of, of leaning on other people, learning from other people, allowing for that transportation, transformation, what it means when you open yourself up to serving others and being supported by others. And that is really challenged. It's not, it's not off the table, but it looks and feels really different in this moment in time. And then, but you have this experience of building and sustaining a community entirely virtually. 
Yeah, it's, it's been a remarkable experience because the podcast actually came out of an in-person class. We ran it at the Humanist Hub in Cambridge, Mass. for a year, you know, and it really was a little congregation. We had 30 people who came in week in, week out. People fell in love. They became housemates, visited each other in the hospital, uh, fell out, you know, the, the whole thing. Um, and it wasn't financially sustainable. You know, like yeah. so many new initiatives, right. we needed the average of about $10 per, per class to, to make it sustainable. And the average donation was four and a half. And so we, we couldn't do it. And so out of necessity, we were like, okay, well, let's figure out a different model. Let's make it a podcast. Little did we know that it would grow, you know, so much, so much bigger than, than an in-person class. But one of the things that I learned is the power of a kind of a mixed media approach. So the, the podcast grew and suddenly we started to see low Local groups pop up and there's now more than 68 local groups that meet in person to do the practices that we do on the podcast and there's a you know thriving Facebook group etc etc but now as as meeting in person becomes very very difficult and and you know we need to minimize social contact or physical contact as much as possible uh, we're seeing those groups become little online hubs we've started an online class we're you know doing all of these uh, uh, efforts to, to still keep connected through distance and I guess the two conclusions that I would draw from, from trying to build community online and offline in this way is that, you know, the first thing to say is it's not the same. It's mm -hmm. not the same. You, th there, there is loss. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't hold someone close. You can't touch them or hug them. You can't pick up on some of the subtle signals mm -hmm. that you're able to when you're in person. Um, uh, you know, you can, um, I, I've figured out some good ways to sing together over Zoom, but you can't have a whole group singing together in the same way as easily. So there's absolutely lost. But, but the other thing that I've noticed is um, it also offers, offers other opportunities. Uh, firstly, because you're able to include other people who would otherwise not be able necessarily to be there in person. Um, people are able to navigate, you know, maybe, maybe kids can be involved more easily because they're at home. Um, sometimes having just audio allows for much more intimacy in terms of sharing. Um, and so it's been really, um, people feel safer because they're in their own space. And so like doing a dance party, like we did at the end of our online Harry Potter class last night, we played Abba's Dancing Queen and you had 400 people dancing in their living rooms. Like, oh, that's that, fantastic. That's not so easy to do when you're with a group in person. So right. th th there are also opportunities. Um, and it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's a heady time that we're in. And, and, you know, I suspect the world will not just return to how it was. I think we are really learning how to navigate this online offline world in, in the same way that the secular sacred division mm -hmm. is not quite true. I think the online offline division more and more is just right. not quite true either. Right. Right. I think that's exactly right. Um, we've had, it's interesting. We've had these experiences sometimes at work where this is before pandemic where mm -hmm. We, we, a group of us would be together in the same space, but we wanted to Zoom someone in who wasn't there. And we would make the difficult decision yeah. of um, all of us choosing to Zoom to Zoom so that Correct. we all had the same experience rather than the, the larger thing. So like I, I do, it's like in interesting yeah. to see like there are best practices emerging. And I think that, I think you're right that this is, this is, this is going to change our economy for sure. Mm -hmm. This is going to change our religious institutions. I hope that we are really mindful of that we carry over the, yeah. the, you know, the way that this has made, especially for people with disabilities to participate right. more, more, that we are able to embed in the, um, the best practices and, and keep them going moving forward. Well, one of the things I've also really learned, and particularly with my colleagues, Angie and Sue Phillips, um, 
was how to, how to think about ritual making online. And, and one of the really easy things when we think about moving things online is that it all becomes about the screen, that we're always looking at the screen, that the screen's looking at us, and, and you know, it's hard to do for a long time. Yeah. And it's so exhausting of, too. It's, it's exhausting. It's, yeah. Absolutely, physically on our eyes uh, yeah. and, and our concentration. So one of the things that we've really learned about ritual making is to use real things. Don't make everything virtual. Use a real candle. Use a real um, prayer shawl or throw. Use a real stone or bowls of water. And it's amazing how you can... Um, actually create real magic, uh, uh, even online. Um, yeah. And so you, can, you also have to be careful. I saw a video of a, <laughs> you're laughing, you know what I'm going to say. A video, there's a really one of, of, of a, a pastor. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't, I just looked at it, but who set himself on fire. And yes. No, you absolutely. I've, many people have blown wax all over their screen. Yes. <laughs> remember about the limitations but but it you know it's it's not as if it's just a prison right like that that yeah. there's actually is still an opportunity for, for people to do to do amazing things and well i think the embodiment is so yes. important at this moment in time that you know that we're not just talking heads or that's right and that, that we're not we're more than just our avatars on the screen and so and i that's mean right. what we my wife and i have been setting timers to make certain we get up and walk uh, yes. because you know she's on I'm on a small campus she's on a bigger campus like she usually gets we wear step counters she usually gets four or five thousand steps just moving Between around classroom her. to classroom yeah, yeah. and yeah. so like uh, so I think it's, it's it also helps to reinforce a kind of synthesis an integration that's really yes. important yeah absolutely well so we, we have to wind down just for the sake of time but um, so tell us about uh, tell us about the power of ritual tell us about the book yeah, well, in some ways, you know, it really covers the kind of things we've been talking about today. I, the, the premise is in a time of, of social disconnection, you know, the, the rates of loneliness are going up, more and more people living on their own. Uh, uh, and, and at the same time, the decrease in religious affiliation, right? More and more people are less and less traditionally religious. How can we find meaning and connection to the things that matter most? And so I, I really try and um, look at how people are already uh, in their own lives building little rituals, even though they might not think about them with, with that particular word. Uh, and also some of these communities, you know, the dinner party that helps connect young people uh, who've experienced grief and loss. Um, the ways in which people are, are kind of making a pilgrimage in all sorts of new ways to, to, to really give a sense of, you know, although our spiritual lives might not look like they used to, it's still a very rich experience that's happening for people right now. And then to, to gently, you know, introduce particularly readers who might not be familiar with, with different spiritual traditions with some of the, the, the great theologians, you know, and, and that these are wisdom traditions that still speak to us. If we, if we can put on our glasses and be ready to translate a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so one of, yeah, one of, one of the real joys for me was actually looking back at my own life. And I share some stories in the book about, about my childhood and the way I was raised and suddenly looking back and being like, you know what? Yeah, I wasn't raised religiously, but actually here were all of these beautiful rituals, all of these amazing sacred traditions that were showing up, you know, whether it was my dad, you know, who would always carry the birthday child down the stairs, me and my three sisters on our birthday morning, you know, whether it was the, uh, the, <laughs> the, the Hungarian lodger who lived with us for a time, who taught cooking classes, who instructed everyone to pretend to be the carrot before they started cooking carrots, you know, <laughs> just all of these <laughs> things that I look back at now and I'm like, wow, actually my life was drenched in ritual. I just, wasn't looking at it so i, and I really intentionality hope, and intentionality exactly. right yeah so i really hope that the people who read the book will, will will kind of reassess their own life and say gosh 
I actually have much more ritual, much more meaning-oriented practices than I thought I did. And if I can pay attention to them, um, I will, uh, like, the, just my experience of life will be, will be one of more joy and, and connection. I think that that's right. I mean, I just, I, I want to, I can't wait to read it. And I know I can, I, I, here in March, I can pre-order it. I, I promise you I will. Oh, you'll see. Um, Thank you. <laughs> uh, and I, it makes me also think about the website that we, we create and sponsor, RitualWell.org. Absolutely. I'm very and, excited to do a, a, a workshop with them. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so glad you'll do that. And, um, and we're, what we're also seeing at this moment in time is that there's a really significant uptick that yeah. in February, there were 25,000 unique visitors and, and already in March, there are 30,000 that people I think are hungering for, it, especially, of course, like this is a, this is a, this is also here challenge and opportunity. This is an opportunity for us to try to seek out meaning and try to seek out essential and elemental commitments. And yeah, I, I think we're coming up against the limits of the, the kind of cultural narratives that we live in, right? That what matters is power and money and fame. And, right. and, when, things, when, and, and, and things and material objects. Yeah. And, and when those literally cannot be made available in the same way that they were, we, we turn to one another, but also kind of turn inward to say, well, what, what really matters? What do I want to pay attention to? What, how do I want to live my life? And um, it turns out we're not the first generations to ask that. And we can, we can learn from those who've gone before. Right, right. And then we, and we can create containers that reinforce and that help us to, to live out those commitments. Absolutely. Absolutely. Casper, it's so extraordinary as always to talk with you. Deborah, thank you for leading us. I so appreciate your wisdom and, and friendship and especially in times like this. So thank you. Yeah, so mutual. Um, I am so grateful to my guest, Casper Turkile, for our wonderful conversation on gathering, on ritual, on meaning-making. And I love the laughter. Uh, I, I love this podcast, but I don't know that we laugh so much uh, at it. So I'm, I'm glad that we've made space for that, especially at this moment. Yeah. Um, for more information on this topic, you can look on Hashivenu's website, which is hashivenu.fireside.fm. We'll load up the PDFs of how we gather and, and the links to the other monographs that came out um, and a link to the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text podcast if you haven't found it on your own. And you can also find more resources on reconstructingjudaism.org and, of course, on ritualwell.org. And you can also find a lot on Casper's uh, thinking and writing and hopefully travels at some moment in time um, on his website, powerofritual.org. Um, please, if you can, take a moment to subscribe, to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Casper. Thank you again so much. So great to be with you. I am Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashivenu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Hashivenu.